King David, who was the man after God's own heart, um, is the one who wrote this psalm. Um, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 a, uh, a grievous sin that, that David committed. Um, if you know the story, you know that, that he was in the top of his castle on his roof early one morning, looked over the city, looked at another roof, and saw a woman bathing, uh, lusted after her, called her into his bedroom, uh, slept with her, got her pregnant, um, killed her husband, and then ended up marrying her. And there are so many things that are so weird and jacked up in that story. But um, as, as 2 Samuel 12 plays out, and, and we'll dive more into this in just a few minutes, but as 2 Samuel 12 dives, dives, uh, dives in, we realize that David recognizes his sin and birthed here is Psalm 51 in response to what um, God is doing in his heart. So let's just read this together and let's pray. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward beings and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness." O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. <laughs> Let's pray. God, there's so much truth for us here in this psalm. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for David's journey. I'm thankful for David's sin. I'm thankful for David's response because it has been such a model for me. As I pray a number of those verses regularly with you, that you would cleanse me and restore unto me the joy of your salvation, that you would not take your Holy Spirit from me, but that you would wash me clean, 
that you would forgive me and that you would help me to not commit these sins that I commit over and over and over again. And the truth is, in my experience and also in David's experience, God, you always show up. You always rescue, you always redeem, you always draw us back to yourself. But there's always pain in the midst of you doing that because we have to confess something. We have to own our part in it. And that's never fun and never easy. But the promise is true. And God, I know that you are real and I know that you are good because I've experienced that time and time again in my life. And I know that there are someone sitting on their couch, sitting in their car, sitting in their kitchens, sitting with their family, sitting alone, whatever, that you have a truth to speak to them this morning to proclaim who you are over them and who they are without you and who they are in you. So God, restore and redeem and draw people to yourself even as we're doing church in this way. As I pray these prayers over our church and for myself and for us this morning, part of me just feels guilty because I'm so not perfect at this. But God, you've used these verses to transform my life and I pray that that's what it's felt and experienced is seen this morning as we just open this scripture together. Be my words, be my heart. May your truth be proclaimed. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs> All right, Psalm 51, here we go. Let's just talk about sin and let's talk about repentance. I mean, in so many ways, um, this is Christianity 101. Like, we know that we're all sinners, right? But before we dive in, um, well, I hope that we, we go deeper with this, and I hope that, that God does something so much more inside of us than just knowing the fact that, that we're sinners. But I'm going to let that lie for right now. We'll come back to that, that idea and that thought here in just a few minutes. But as we dive in, I got a question for you. Um, how do you respond when someone points out your faults? Maybe there's a better question. If you're sitting in a room with someone that, that, that knows you and that knows you pretty well, um, how about you ask them that question? How about you let them tell you how you respond whenever you are exposed and whenever you find out that you're wrong or that you're at fault in some way? It's never fun to learn that we're not perfect. If we could be honest with ourselves, Every single one of us has a defense mechanism that we lean on that is designed to protect us from feeling like we have failed or from being exposed to some reality that we did not do something right or that we did not do something well. So what is your initial reaction when someone points out that you messed up? What do you run to? What is your mechanism? What do you turn to? If you know me well, you know I'm a sports fan. I love watching sports, and I'm so thankful for the NBA bubble to have live sports back on TV. Uh, Rip Blazers, uh, it was a good run. Um, it, it, it ended bad last night, but I'm proud of you. Uh, anyway, that's not where I'm going with all this. Um, if you've watched the NBA for any amount of time, it, it never uh, ceases to amaze me, and, and it cracks me up watching these grown men who are playing a professional sport when a referee 
blows the whistle when they've committed a foul or they traveled or whatever it is, they always look at the ref and they're like, they give the most like uh, surprise face, like what? No, it wasn't me. How in the world did I do that? And they argue nine times out of 10, a professional grown man is going to argue with the referee every time that whistle is blown. It is really rare that you see someone throwing their hands up in the air and saying, yep, that was me. My fault. Sorry about that. Um, it, because our natural defense mechanisms are to protect ourselves, right? And we see this inside of sports, right? What about you? What defense mechanisms kick in when your boss calls you into her office? When you didn't know it or expect it? And you're making that walk of shame to the office, not knowing what's about to, uh, to, to be talked about but you know it's about something you did. If you're a boss, if you're a manager of people, how do you respond when you make a bad decision and no one's calling you out, but yet you have to own it? Do you brush it under the rug? What is your defense mechanism whenever you know that you've failed as a leader? What's your initial reaction when your spouse or significant other, a boyfriend or a girlfriend tells you that you hurt them how do you respond, students who are watching, how do you respond when a teacher calls you out for misbehaving in class? Kids, what goes through your mind when your mom or dad tells you um, that you didn't do something that they wish you would have done or that you did do something that you shouldn't have done? What defense mechanisms kick up inside you? Oh, I got a personal story for every single one of those examples. I wish I had time to just relate and go into it, but I'm just trusting that, that you have also experiences with that, right? Can we try to be honest with ourselves this morning? In these moments that we're describing, we get defensive. We always, and always, we, we tend to blame shift or point out someone else's fault whenever we are the ones who are wrong. Or maybe you shut down because you don't know what to do or say or how to defend yourself. Do you make excuses for the choices you have made? Do you get angry because someone's actually called you out? I mean, we could go on and on and on. All of these defense mechanisms are natural for us. These responses are natural responses. These responses are actually, are, they, they, they're what make us human. It doesn't excuse our behavior, but it lets you know that you're not alone in how you respond to these types of things. In reality, how we respond in these moments tells us a lot about ourselves. And more importantly, how we respond in these moments will either create more conflict in situations or it will allow us to move forward in relationship with those people we're in relationship with. What I want to argue today is that our defense mechanisms are not only towards people that we are in relationship with, but our natural instinctive behaviors towards others mirror how we respond to God when he calls us out, when he reveals to us our sin nature. 
David's response to God in Psalm 51 is a living and breathing example of what it looks like to move forward in relationship with him. And it's so easy to read the words on this piece of paper, and it's so easy to relate with this and be like, yes, I want this. But living this out is extremely difficult. It actually takes a lifetime of practice and failure and understanding and apology and moving forward. And I'm so thankful that inside this psalm, what we see is that God never gives up on us, that David is proclaiming to God to not leave me, but stay with me, restore unto me the joy that I once, that I once had. And we can pray that prayer a hundred times, a thousand times, and God is going to continue to be there because it is a... Um, a lifelong learning process for us to have this relationship. As we talk today, I want us to know three things. I want us to know David's story. I want us to see David's process. And I want us to be honest with ourselves as we uh, have our sin exposed, as we look at David's process. And lastly, I want us to see who God is for David as David repents of his sin and know that his experience can be and should be and will be your experience whenever you lean on Jesus in this way. So our main point that I want us to get today, the the thing that I want to repeat over and over again, what I want us to learn from David is this reality, that we are broken and redeemed. Every single one of us, we're sinners at our core, and we're broken, but that does not scare God away. God actually uh, knows it, initiates us in this process, and redeems us to himself, and we see this come out really clearly in David. As we dive in, let's not forget the backdrop of this psalm, right? That Um, David is king of all of Israel. He is known as the man after God's own heart. That David is a good king. We see lots of bad kings in scripture, right? When you read uh, 1 and 2 Kings, you see so many bad kings that pop up. David is not this bad king. David is a good king, and yet he is very human. You can read this story of David and Bathsheba, the one I summarized uh, earlier in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In this story, what you see is lust. You see envy. You see adultery. You see an attempted cover-up. You see coercion. You see murder. <laughs> and it, we can go on and on and on of what happens inside of this story. And to me, as I read this story, the craziest thing in the midst of all of this is that by the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, at the end of the story of David and Bathsheba, David doesn't think he's done anything wrong. He's oblivious to the fact he just keeps moving forward until we dive into 2 Samuel chapter 12. To understand this story, we have to understand one thing. The first point I want us to get today is that we have to know that sin has broken everything. This is the only thing that makes sense to me as I think about this story of David and Bathsheba and him coming out of it and not knowing anything, uh, not even batting an eye that he's done anything wrong. I mean, he is a king in Israel who has everything at his exposure, right? Right? He has rights to everything, but 
sin blinded him from what is right. I can't put myself in his shoes because I've never been the king of anything. But I can start to understand how he got to this place, right? It doesn't excuse it, but I can start to understand it because once Genesis 3 happened, Genesis 3 changed everything. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the garden and brought sin into the world, that has changed everything. It has impacted and affected everything that we do and everything that we experience. If you follow Jesus for any amount of time, if you understand the gospel story at all, you understand the fact of Romans 3.23 that we are all sinners, right? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what I want us to get today is the fact that we are not just people who sin. That is, that is true, but when we just see ourselves as people who sin, I think we then start to water down what sin actually is and the impact of it and how it has infiltrated every part of our lives and our thinking. So we're not just people who sin, but our sin nature impacts, it affects everything in our lives. Every decision, every drive, every thought, every passion, every desire, every reaction, every feeling, every emotion, every logical thing that you do, every relationship that you have, sin impacts every bit of it. We cannot escape it because it is at the core of who we are. And what we'll get to in a few minutes is this is what makes the gospel so beautiful because of who God is in the midst of that. So we have to move beyond the fact of just seeing ourselves as people who sin, that just sin, and move into this reality that sin impacts everything that we do and everything that we think. This is what makes relationships with people so hard. When you get into a romantic relationship, when you get into a marriage, you have two sinners coming into this relationship and um, they fight for their own desires. They naturally react whenever they've done wrong to the others and sin is what creeps in, right? And everything that they want and everything that they do, and if we don't repent, and if we don't own our stuff, we have so much conflict and I fully believe that's why the divorce rate in our country is so high, in our world is so high, because we don't humble ourselves, A, before the Lord and see ourselves in this state, but we also don't humble ourselves before our significant others and our spouses. We fight for what we think is right. And there might be some truth to the things that you think is right, But when we butt heads and we don't humble ourselves and we don't own our stuff and move forward in relationship, we start to drift apart. Passion is no longer there. Attraction is no longer there. It goes away. If you ever listened to the band DC Talk way back in the day, <laughs> they had a song called Love is a Verb. <laughs> it's an action. It's something that we do. It's not just something that we feel. There is not a single thing in our life unaffected by sin. David's righteousness didn't center on the choices he made in his life, but it centered on how he responded to the voice of the Lord. David had to be called out. 
Remember the question that I started off with today? How do you respond when someone points out your faults? This is where David's righteousness comes true. So the second thing I want us to see as we dive into this story is David's revelation. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're not going to turn there. I'm not going to read anything from 2 Samuel chapter 12. But if you want to read it on your own to see this, please do. But I just want to summarize what leads us right into our text today. Nathan was a prophet of God and was also a really good friend of David's. Dare I say, maybe a saving grace that God used to bring David to himself. Nathan knew of this story of David and Bathsheba knew of all of it, and instead of blasting David and just saying, dude, you're wrong, you screwed up, you need to make this right, he goes into a story. He speaks the language of David so that David would know uh, what he did and be able to hear what he did. Nathan told this story about two men in a city. One man is rich, one man is poor. The rich man has lots of sheep. The poor man has one sheep. One little lamb that he treated like a child. It wasn't food. It, it, it was kind of like a pet. And the way that this story goes out, it was more than a pet. It was like a family member. And the rich man had a friend coming to town. Didn't want to slaughter his own lambs to feed the friends coming into town. Instead, he went to the poor man, stole his sheep, sacrificed his sheep, and fed his sheep to the lambs. Or sorry, to the, to the guests. And... Um, before Nathan could even finish his story, we see David enraged. He was angry. And he blurted out, that rich man deserves death. Then the most famous line in this chapter, Nathan says, you are that man. How would you respond when someone calls out your faults? In that moment, do you instinctually deny, make excuses, deflect, hide in shame. Instead, this is what comes out from David. Truth be told, we don't know his exact, uh, exact what his initial reaction was, but we do see where he ended up. Praise God. He writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my sin and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in sin and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth and in the inward beings and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, the reality is, is it wasn't just to God where, where he sinned. It wasn't only before God that he sinned. He also sinned against Bathsheba. I mean, Bathsheba's husband was murdered before her very eyes because of David. David's sin impacted her and impacted the kingdom. As we continue to read to see what God did because of his sin, lots of people were impacted because of David's choice, because of David's sin. But David only has one thing in mind. He has tunnel vision, and he doesn't care about his kingdom. He doesn't care about the world around him. All he cares about is him and his relationship with God. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
When was the last time that we approached our sin in that way? To say, God, show me where I've screwed up. Show me where I don't measure up. Show me where I'm wrong so I can own it before you so that you can make everything right. If we're honest, lots of us, whenever we get to that place of failure, we start to fix the things ourselves. We start to insert ourselves to make the impact less on the people around us. Brothers and sisters, that's not where we first run. Yeah, our sin impacts others. But more than anything else, it impacts our relationship with God. And we see David running to God. Lots of times we feel that when we're caught, or we know that when we're caught in our sins, that this is God's anger against us. Maybe we had moms or dads who, when we got in trouble, they were angry, and it is their anger that we saw whenever we we messed up. And so we attribute that to God, that his response to us is his anger and his wrath, and that's why he's pointing out our sin. But I'm going to make the argument that getting caught was God's grace and not his wrath. Now, I'm not saying that God wasn't angry at David's sin. Actually, we know that he was. But wrath is so much deeper than just anger. God was drawing David back into relationship with himself by calling him out. When many of us feel busted or exposed by God, we feel shame and we hide from God. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they ate of the fruit and they were exposed, they hid from God. Naked and ashamed, they hid from God. And God, being God, knew exactly where they were. And, but whenever he entered on the scene, he called out their name and said, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And they came out of hiding, and God saw them. And that it was a very intentional move for God to say, yes, you have messed up, but I stand in your presence, and I see you. I'm going to call out your sin. I'm not going to sweep it under the rug. But the reality is, is I can stand in your presence and I'm not casting you away from me. I'm actually dealing with it in this moment. In his love, he called Adam and Eve out. David ran to God and stood before him exposed. This is where David's freedom is found. So that's where we move from David's revelation to David's reaction. Let's look at verse 7 through 12. We'll just skim it, right? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God, or David knew the truths of God. David was reminding God of who he is. God, or David was reminding himself of his identity in God because of his choices, because of the way that it has um, made him feel and respond and react. And instead of hiding in shame, standing exposed, he is saying these things, wash me, hide your face from my sin, create in me a new heart, cast me not away, 
don't forget me, God. Continue to restore unto me the, the salvation that you once gave me, that feeling and experience that I had once before. Bring that back to me because I know my sin has divided me from you. Reminding God of his promises. Remember when I said how we respond to our faults can either lead us towards more conflict or lead us forward in relationship? This is exactly what I mean. These verses, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, this is the essence of the gospel. We are sinners. Christ has come to give us a new identity. And through the blood of Christ, God restores the joy inside of us. Where do I see that? How do I get that here? Right there in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What is hyssop? Hyssop is a plant with very small little leaves on it. And whenever it's plucked and dried out, you put a whole uh, a bunch together, you can tie them together. What they use that for in, the, the, in, the, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, what we see is they used hyssop inside of the sacrifices. They dipped hyssop in blood to sprinkle it in, in all the places on people in all of the areas. But for me, one of the most prominent places I see hyssop is in the Exodus story. So God unleashes the plagues, right? And in the 10th plague, the angel of death comes through and it skips over the houses with the, the blood that's over the doorpost. And what Moses told the people of Israel to do was to take hyssop, dip it in lamb's blood, and then wipe it over the doorpost so the angel of death will pass through. So this whole idea of hyssop is really all about a blood sacrifice, being cleansed. And we see it explicitly that we'll be clean when we're purged with this hyssop. We will be washed whiter than snow, which leads us to joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The pain that you've allowed to happen in my life is here for a reason, to bring me into more joy of who you are. Praise God that he allows us to go through this because we see who he really is and who we really are and our dependence goes so much deeper. The gospel draws you into relationship with God. God exposing your sin is his greatest act of love. So here's the question, what are we doing with this? When God exposes you, what do you do with it? Maybe a different question, are you allowing God to expose you? Are you pursuing a relationship with him to where his Holy Spirit can show you where you are leaning on yourself and not on him, so that he can restore the joy that you once have had in your life. So we got David's revelation, David's reaction, and then David's response. His sins called out, he's leaning on this messianic prophecy of who we know, standing where we are, who Christ is in the blood of Christ and how he restores and redeems and brings us back into relationship with him. And then his response, verse 13, 
When David experiences this, his posture is, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. I will live in this place of being cleaned and washed whiter than snow, and I will live this out before my brothers and sisters who have minimized their sin nature so that they can experience this very same thing that I'm experiencing today. I will teach transgressors their way, and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. I will sing because of what I've experienced in you. In verse 15, O Lord, open up my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We will teach, we will sing, we will declare We will have a lifestyle that puts God on display. The glory of Jesus will be the thing that is seen in us and through us when we stand in this place and we take our sin seriously and allow the Holy Spirit to show us who we are and we respond to him in such a way that we can find this place of joy. How do you battle spiritual complacency? Are you complacent? (laughs) Every relationship that we get into, whether it's a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship or ends up being a spouse relationship, over time, passion dies. Dies is probably pretty extreme. I'm not going to say dies. Passion fades. Beauty Attraction fades. Um, We get to a place of being complacent in our relationships, and when that happens, that's where problems arise. And that very same thing happens in our relationship with God. I became a follower of Jesus when I was seven years old. And now, standing here at 40, I can say with confidence that I have been complacent many times in my relationship with Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me complacency comes in when we start just taking for granted the small things that our faith is built on and our sin nature is one of them. So how do we battle complacency? The most basic thing is with repentance. When you are wrecked by the unending and unwavering love of God, you cannot help but react you will not experience this unwavering and unending love of God if you do not allow the Holy Spirit to show you where you are wrong and where you have messed up. Because if we just gloss over that, then we're going to end up at a place where we have just made excuses for ourselves. We build our own little kingdoms. But as we sung the song, come straight from Scripture when we were kids, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand went splat. (laughs) We have to let the Holy Spirit show us who we are so that God can do his work in us. When was the last time you had a reaction or you had a response because of who God is in your life? If I want to be honest, it's been months maybe years for me to have that emotional response that I've had when I was early on in my faith. 
because I just live my life. I get complacent. I know the truth. I live the truth. I'm not doing anything necessarily wrong, but I stop allowing the Holy Spirit to correct me and bring me back to this place of knowing who I am and knowing who he is. So I end with this. What does all this tell us about God? One, God takes sin extremely seriously. We are not just sinners. Sin has broken everything. God knows it. God does not sweep it under the rug. And he wants to call it out in you. God did not, secondly, God did not leave us alone to deal with our sin. We don't have to figure it out. Instead, he sent Jesus as a redemption and as a rescue. And everything in the Old Testament, which we have seen here, as well as every other place in the Old Testament, points to the fact that Jesus is coming and the blood of Christ on the cross is what provides life for us. God takes sin seriously. Jesus is our rescue. And the Holy Spirit's greatest act of love is to call you out, to call me out, and to point us to Jesus. I think about um, these verses often in Exodus chapter 34. I just want to wrap everything up with this idea of who God is for David in his journey and who he is for you. In Exodus chapter 34, realizing this comes two chapters after the golden calf incident where all the people created this idol, right? When Moses was on the mountain and God said to Moses, hey, this is what the nation of Israel is doing. I want to kill them. I want to wipe them out. And Moses pleads on their behalf and says, please God, don't do it. Moses reminds God of, uh, reminds God of who he is and God chooses to relent, does not wipe them out, right? Two chapters later, we get these verses that the Lord is declaring this about himself to Moses. Exodus 34, 6 through 9 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will not by no means clear the guilty. How can the God who's going to wipe out a nation in his anger say that he is slow to anger, who is gracious, a merciful, abounding in steadfast love? Did God forget that that's what his emotion was? Absolutely not. God knew that he was going to relent and not wipe out his people, but use Moses as this mediator between the people. God has lavished his love on the nation of Israel and praise God that he did because we are now a part of this story of God's relenting, unrelenting grace in our lives. Maybe you've never recognized Jesus or you have totally turned your back on him. This joy that David is talking about can be yours. Maybe you've sinned as great as David has, or maybe even greater. The same joy is offered to you. Maybe you're someone in between. 
Maybe your sin isn't as grievous as David's, but yet that feeling or that thought or that idea or that posture you have before God is so tainted by the idea of who you are. Let him speak the truth into you and say, this joy can be yours. He is standing before you like Adam and Eve, saying, come out of hiding. Stand before me. I want to see you. I want you to know that I'm not so angry that I'm running away from you. I'm actually running to you to show you your faults and your, and your wrongs so that you can own it and so that we can move forward in relationship. When this is our truth and our reality, we get to experience all that David experienced. I'm gonna pray for us, but I just ask that we sing this truth of our identity, no matter what your story is, no matter where you are, be seeking him, be asking the Holy Spirit to show you who you are and your sin nature, because again, it's uncomfortable, but yet we find great joy. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for everything that you have done to draw us into relationship with you. God, forgive me for minimizing my sin. God, I have so much knowledge in my head about who you are. And that is a great strength that I have, but it is also a, um, a weakness because my knowledge leads me to complacency. May I experience you in a real way so that you may expose me and lavish your love on me. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he stood in my place so that I don't have to experience your ultimate wrath so that I know that you calling me out is actually the greatest act of love that you could do. God, thank you for you and all that you've done. Lead us to know ourselves lead us to know you, and lead us to worship you in song as well as with the way we live when tomorrow comes. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.